Well, hey, tonight we're in the book of Exodus. Thomas, how do you, how in the world do you make so many different sounds off of that one box? I asked for it. I asked for it. Boy just told me the truth. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you speak to our hearts tonight. By your spirit and through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. When we read the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, we come away impressed with God's unlimited scope, with God's unbridled power, God the creator. And yet God's most spectacular accomplishments are not his creative works. They are his redemptive works. You see, it takes no love to create, but it takes intense love to redeem and to retrieve. And especially when what you're retrieving has rebelled against you. It's interesting that there are only a few chapters in the Bible that are devoted to creation. But this whole book is about redemption. The Bible is the story of how God buys us back, buys back mankind from the slavery of sin... This is also the theme of the book of Exodus. The word Exodus is from two Greek words, ek, or out of, and horus, or the road, the way. Exodus is the road out of bondage. It is the way out, not only of Egyptian bondage, but also the spiritual bondage that some of us remain in, bondage that has been caused by our sin. If you feel trapped, If sin has a vice grip on your life that you can't seem to shake, if you're looking for a way out, then take heart. For Exodus means way out. This is a way out book that will help you get way out of trouble and out of the bondage that you might be in tonight. This book is for you. And over the next several weeks, we're going to be learning how God wants to bring us out of the bondage of sin and into a life of victory. Well, Exodus opens as Genesis closes. Jacob and his family joined Joseph in Egypt. Originally, 70 people settled in the land of Goshen, in the northeast corner of Egypt. They planned to wait out the famine, but they never returned home to Canaan. We're told what happened. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, the twelve sons of Jacob. All those who were descendants of Jacob were seventy persons, for Joseph was already in Egypt. And Joseph died all his brothers in all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful. And increased abundantly, multiplied, and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. In Numbers chapter 1, a Hebrew census will be taken. And there Moses will count 
over 600,000 men 20 years old and older at the time of the Exodus. 600,000 men. Add to that number women and children, and that pushes the Hebrew population in Egypt upwards of 2 million, maybe even 3 million people. Egypt at the time was a land of around 7 million people. That means that nearly a third of the country's total population was now of Hebrew descent. And this frightened the Egyptians. I mean, they looked around, and these Hebrew women, they were fertile myrtles. They were having babies left and right. And if this Hebrew baby boom wasn't stopped, the Egyptians would be outnumbered in their own country. Verse 8 tells us, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. This was actually more than just a new king. It was a new dynasty of kings. You remember, Joseph came to power under the Hyksos, or the shepherd kings, foreigners, nomads really, who had invaded Egypt and taken over control. But now the native Egyptians have recaptured the throne. And a new administration shifts its policy toward the Hebrews living in its borders. Jacob's family is no longer going to enjoy this favored nation status that they have previously. And the Pharaoh said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us. And so go up out of the land. The, the Egyptians were fearing a Hebrew uprising. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Python and Ramesses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And you'll find that this always happens when God's people are oppressed and persecuted they multiply. In the book of Acts, when the church was attacked, what happened? It grew. Persecuting the church was like pouring gas on a fire. It only caused the flame to burn brighter. Under persecution, true believers intensify their commitment. They streamline their service. They bulk up their faith. When persecution strikes, we get serious about our faith. It's in times of ease that we grow flabby. Rather than faith, we gain flab. But under mounting persecution, the church becomes clean and lean and serene. A real witnessing machine. It all happens under persecution. Verse 12 tells us, And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. They just poured it on in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field, all their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. The Jewish historian Josephus says that the Hebrews also built walls within the borders of Egypt. They also built canals throughout the land, and they even built some of the famous pyramids. Yet again, all of this hardship... All of this rigor didn't stunt their growth. They continued to multiply. And so the Pharaoh came up with another plan. You know, you pour on the persecution. They only multiply like rabbits. So let's come up with something else. Verse 15 tells us, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shiprah and the name of the other Puah. And he said, 
When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Now, the birth stool was an Egyptian innovation in childbirth. In Egypt, women would give birth standing up rather than lying down. They would crouch. I'm not going to demonstrate this, but... <laughs> they would crouch down over two stones or, or two, two bricks. And they would push down on the stones. And so the pushing along with the law of gravity, you know, you got the law of gravity working with you. It sort of helped the child slide down the birth canal. And of course, the midwife caught the kid before he hit the ground. Pharaoh, you don't like the idea, do you? (laughs) Pharaoh had used external hardship to stop the growth of the Hebrews, but to no avail. Now, though, he tries some internal sabotage. He asks the midwives to do the dirty work. When a male child is born, hey, conveniently cause a problem, abort the child. You know, this is also Satan's strategy with the church. If he can't intimidate us from the outside, he'll try to infiltrate us from the inside. He'll send false teachers, selfish shepherds, corrupt midwives, you might say, into the church to sabotage our growth, to abort the new births that might occur. Beware, if Satan can't hit us from the outside, he'll try to corrupt us from the inside. Verse 17 says, but the midwives feared God. I like that. I'm sure they feared Pharaoh, but they feared God more. And and that's what it boils down to, isn't it? Who do you fear more? And the midwives did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. Here is a good example of appropriate civil disobedience. When the laws of the land violate God's laws... We need the courage of these Hebrew midwives to obey God rather than men. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And they were probably quaking in their boots as they're being interrogated here. I mean, they've been arrested for disobeying the most powerful man on the planet at that time. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're lively. And they give birth before the midwives come to them. I mean, these Hebrew gals don't play. I mean, like Domino's Pizzas, man, they're into speedy deliveries. Before we can get there, the child's been born. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. God rewarded their obedience. And he did so personally. For so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. Because of their obedience, these two midwives became housewives. God blessed them with husbands and with children of their own. You know, in a spiritual sense, I was thinking about this this week. This is also what I have experienced as a pastor. For for in a sense, a pastor is a spiritual midwife. 
You know, it's my job to assist and to help when people are born again, when people are born spiritually into the family of God. And, you know, a pastor finds himself caring for and ministering to the households, the families of the church. But, you know, in return, God has blessed me with a wonderful family. I'm so proud of my kids. I'm so in love with my wife and so proud of my wife. It just seems that as I've been going about being a midwife to so many people, God has blessed me with a wonderful family of my own. I'm thankful for that. Verse 22. So Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Here again, he tries it again. This time he orders all the male babies to be thrown into the Nile River. Now, Josephus says that the Pharaoh's actions were actually prompted by a prophecy. That one of his wise men had predicted that a child was about to be born among the Hebrews who would be raised up and who would deliver God's people. And so Pharaoh's actions specifically were his attempt to wipe out that prophetic deliverer. Well, chapter 2 tells us about that child. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. And so the woman conceived and bore a son. Later we learn the couple's name was Amram and Jochebed. And their baby boy was a child named Moses. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months she didn't want him thrown into the Nile River. She was a, he was a beautiful baby. She loved him so much, and so she hid him. Again, Josephus, who, who was a Jewish historian at the time of Christ, he says that Moses was so handsome growing up, that he was such a beautiful child, that while he was living in the court of Pharaoh, people would actually go by out of their way to walk by the nursery just to lay eyes on this kid. Admire his good looks. My parents say that they had the same problem. (laughs) With my brother. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 23 tells us, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents, because they saw he was a beautiful child, And they were not afraid of the king's command. I never knew what an act of faith it was hiding a baby for three months. I never knew how much faith that would require until I had a baby of my own. I mean, this took incredible faith. We're going to hide a baby for three months? I mean, what if baby Moses wakes up in the middle of the night and he gets hungry and he decides to let everybody know it? What if he burps at the wrong time? What if the kid gets colic? Or what if dad sticks the kid with a safety pin trying to change his diapers? Worse, what if dad sticks himself with a safety pin while trying to change his diapers? What if a scream gets let out? I'm telling you, what happens later at the Red Sea is no more of a miracle than hiding a baby for three months. Both were miracles. It's interesting, Josephus tells us that Amram, Moses' father, had a dream at this time, and in it, God told him of the child's destiny. That helped motivate him to hide this child. 
And thus Hebrews 11 verse 23 reads, By faith Moses was hidden. Verse 3, But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, dabbed it with asphalt and pitch, in other words, made it waterproof, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister, who later we'll know was Miriam, stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Now, since Pharaoh had ordered all of the male babies thrown into the river, I would have imagined that it would be Jochebed's initial maternal impulse to keep baby Moses as far away from that river as possible. Wouldn't you think? You know, it's amazing to me, though, that she takes the baby, puts it in a basket, waterproofs the basket, then brings the basket down to the Nile. Apparently, God had prompted her to do so. He had put it in her heart. You know, it's interesting that God often takes instruments of death, in this case, the Nile River, and turns them into tools of life and deliverance. Another wonderful example is a Roman cross. Well, verse 5 tells us, Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. She sees the basket. She commands her servants to go and fetch the child. Here is an amazing work of God's providence. God overseeing circumstances, working them out according to His purposes. Now, we don't really know the identity of Pharaoh's daughter at the time, but there is a good possibility that she was a girl named Hatshepsut. She was the barren daughter of Amenhotep I, a powerful, politically powerful princess, incidentally. Hatshepsut later became queen. And it could be that she looked on the baby Moses as an heir to the throne, as her heir to succeed her in ruling over Egypt. Cecil B. DeMille's classic movie, The Ten Commandments. You've seen it, I'm sure. Really and truly, it's not that far off historically. DeMille developed the storyline of his movie by weaving together the biblical accounts along with some extra-biblical sources, namely Josephus. And so it's really quite accurate. There's an interesting Jewish legend. It comes from the Talmud that tells an interesting story about the baby Moses. I think it's worth repeating. One day, the story goes, while playing on Pharaoh's lap, the child, Moses, grabbed the king's crown And he tossed it on the floor. And then he got down off the Pharaoh's lap and stomped on the crown. Obviously, his actions were prophetic. I mean, the baby's antics were a preview of coming attractions. And the Egyptian magicians, they took this incident seriously. They saw it as an act of treason. And from that day forward, they viewed Moses with a suspicion. The king, though, he sort of laughed the whole thing off as child's play. Well, Pharaoh told the magicians after they expressed their concern that if this baby really, you know, if if their suspicions were true, if this baby was given a choice, it would prove that it was really just an infantile, you know, didn't really have much of an intellect, didn't have much of a cognitive reasonings and all going. And so they, they suggested that he be given a choice between a hot coal in a piece of gold. And the Pharaoh said, hey, this is just a baby. If given a choice between a hot coal 
and a piece of gold, obviously the baby will choose the hot coal. You know, there, there's no way. The baby doesn't even know what's valuable and what's not. Well, when they put Moses to this little test, sure enough, the baby grabbed the hot coal and actually stuck it in its mouth as babies do. And the legend goes that the hot coal burned Moses' tongue and caused a permanent speech impediment. And later, when Moses is called by God to go to Egypt, you know, he will use as an excuse, I'm slow of speech, I can't speak, Lord. He'll use this speech impediment as an excuse. But we're getting ahead of ourselves a bit, aren't we? Back at the riverside, verse 6. And when she had opened the ark or the basket, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. And so the woman, and guess who that woman was? It was Jochebed. It was his mother, took the child and nursed him. Here's another act of God's providence. Pharaoh's daughter appoints Moses' own natural mother to nurse him. In ancient times, kids were nursed and breastfed, not for a few months, but for several years. And thus this gave Jochebed time to teach her son some of God's truth. Well, verse 10 tells us, And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And so she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. The Hebrew word Moshe means to draw out. And so Moses became his name. It's interesting, in Acts chapter 7, Verses 21 and 22, Stephen gives us some details into the life of Moses that we really don't get anywhere else. He sort of fills in a gap in Moses' early history. There, Stephen says, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. As the queen's son, Moses was educated in Egypt's finest academies. I mean, he got the kind of education we give kids here at Calvary Chapel Christian School. It was amazing. You know, it's an irony, though. What a sense of humor God shows. Moses was the baby that the Pharaoh was trying to kill. Instead, God works it out where the Pharaoh bankrolls his room, board, and education. God always gets the last laugh. Imagine what this must have been like, though, for Moses. Imagine a child from one of the poorest of the poor families in Haiti. Suddenly he gets whisked away on a jet airplane. He lands in the White House, and he's adopted by the president and Mrs. Bush. Moses and Bush seem to go together. We'll find out later. But this is literally what happens to Moses. I mean, he goes from poverty to privilege. He goes from slavery to the royal family. What an incredible turn of, of events for Moses. It's interesting, one other note. Stephen says, Moses was mighty in words and deeds. Moses must have been very successful in his education. 
the Egyptians were, would have schooled him in science and in engineering. and in, They were quite the engineers. The pyramids are a great example. And in literature and in astronomy and in chemistry and in law and in philosophy and on and on it goes. One of the mighty deeds that he performed that's mentioned by Josephus. The, the Jewish historian says that when Moses was around 30 years old, this young Egyptian prince led the Egyptian army against the Ethiopians and won a great victory. As a matter of fact, DeMille actually makes reference to that episode in his movie. Apparently, 40 years now elapse between verses 10 and 11. 40 years. Acts chapter 7 again, verse 23, Stephen tells us, Now when Moses was 40 years old, that's how we know 40 years elapsed. When Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Apparently, Moses knew all along his racial identity. And evidently, it produced some kind of personal crisis within his heart. For as the prince in the royal court, Moses knew he was in line to succeed the Pharaoh. He could one day be king over all Egypt. But Moses also knew that Egypt was not his home. And God put a stirring. God put a restlessness in Moses' heart. Moses became disenchanted with the world, with the frills and thrills of Egypt. He longed for more. He wanted to know God. And he wanted to discover God's purposes for his life. I hope you have that longing tonight. I hope you're really not believing tonight that this world can satisfy your deepest longings. I hope you don't think for one second that this world can give you what you're really looking for. You were made with a desire for God. Each one of us was made with a longing for God. And until we find God, we will be restless. We'll be unhappy. It's only when we find God that we come back home and find that for which we were created for in the first place. Well, Hebrews 11 verse 24 sums up Moses' spiritual awakening. It says, By faith Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And all of Egypt had not given him any kind of lasting satisfaction. They were all just passing pleasures. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greatest, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward, and by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Verse 11 records the exact incident. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. He wanted to get an up close look at how his people, the Hebrews, were actually being treated. But he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren, and he couldn't believe the cruelty, the injustice that this taskmaster was taking upon this, this Hebrew. And, and so he reacted. He just reacted. He looked this way and that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, this is not an act of obedience to God. If Moses were taking a stand for God, he wouldn't have looked this way and that way to see if no one was looking. No, no, if he were taking a stand for God, he would have looked upward. 
He would have put his faith in God and trusted in God no matter what anyone might have thought. But Moses, you see, he looks this way. He looks that way to see if no one's looking. In other words, he's on his own. He is relying on his own cunning and in his own cleverness to deliver these Hebrews. In other words, he's trying to serve God, but he's doing it in his own strength. Happens to us a lot, doesn't it? We want to serve God, but we step out in our own strength, on our own, in our own confidence. Moses kills this Egyptian with his bare hands and hides the corpse in the sand. Well, Verse 13 says, And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? And then he said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me? As you killed the Egyptian, the word is out. It's on the streets. The news has hit the streets. So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh. Rather than risk arrest, Moses chooses to flee, to be a fugitive. And he flees from the land of Egypt and he hides out in the desert. We're told, and he dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now imagine how disillusioned Moses must have been. I mean, he could have helped these Hebrews. He had some clout. He had some political power. Man, he had connections, and he could have alleviated their suffering. But they ratted him out. They shot themselves in the foot. And thanks to the people, Moses wasn't able to help anybody. He has now lost everything. Imagine how depressed Moses must have been. In Acts 7 verse 25, Stephen again tells us of Moses' disappointment. He says, For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. He supposed. He made a mistake in supposing. Apparently, Moses had gained a sense of his Hebrew identity, and he wondered why the Hebrews didn't recognize him as their deliverer. Again, Moses wanted to serve God. He wanted to deliver his people. But now he is, he is stripped of all of his earthly influence. Everything he was relying on, everything he was trusting in, is now gone. And guys, in God's plan, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. For God always does His will His way. He works through our faith, not through our flesh. He works in His ways, not through necessarily through our strength and our ingenuity. And Moses here is the classic example. Here's a man trying to serve God, but doing it through his own genius, through his own power. Moses is relying on worldly position and worldly clout not on the power of God. And that's a mistake. And Moses has a lot to learn. He has spent 40 years in the schools of Egypt. Now God enrolls him for the next 40 years in the school of brokenness, in the school of the wilderness. Remember chapter 46 of Genesis, chapter 46, verse 34, where we were told that the Egyptians despised shepherds? You remember that little detail that we uncovered? 
they looked down their nose at shepherds as lowlifes. Egyptians hated shepherds. Well, guess what? God now makes Moses a shepherd. A shepherd. Moses has to be broken of his pride, of his self-sufficiency. He has to be broken of his own confidence in himself so that he can be used by God. He has to learn to trust in God, not in his own strength. And God is about to change Moses from a man who looks this way and who looks that way to a man who looks upward, who walks by faith, not by sight, who has confidence in God, not in himself. Well, verse 16 tells us what happens to Moses and Midian. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. Girls first was not a Midianite motto. The men went first, then the women. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. He became their knight in shining armor. He drove the men away so that they could water their flocks first. And when they came to Reuel, their father, this man also goes by the name of Jethro, by the way. He said, how is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. And perhaps they call Moses an Egyptian because he still was wearing Egyptian clothes maybe or still had an Egyptian haircut perhaps. He, he looked like an Egyptian in some way apparently. And so Reuel said to his daughters, and where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. Moses finds a wife. Where does he find a wife? By a well. Isn't it amazing how many people in the Bible find their wife by a well? If you're single tonight, you ought to go off and find a well somewhere and just sit down. and <laughs> Kind of wait a while, who knows? And she bore him a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And of course, the Greek word Gershom means stranger. One of the truths that we'll discover as we go through the Old Testament is that if you look close enough, you will find Jesus on every single page. There's a picture of him everywhere. And here again, we see Jesus in a typological sense. Recall the first time Moses goes to the Hebrews to deliver them. What did they do? They reject him. They only receive him when he comes to them the second time. Isn't that interesting? You know, Jesus came the first time to his people, the Hebrews. And what did they do? They rejected him. But we know that when he comes again, they'll look on him whom they have pierced. And they will repent over how they've treated him. And they'll embrace him as their Messiah. Not the first time he comes to them, but the second time he comes again to them. And it's interesting. What does Moses do between these two comings? He takes a Gentile bride. And guess what Jesus is doing between this first coming and his second coming? He too is taking a Gentile bride, his church, you and I. And in a sense, 
We're Gershoms, aren't we? We're strangers and pilgrims on this earth. This world is not our home. Amazing the pictures we see here of Jesus. Verse 23. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. And they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. I want you to understand. Wherever there are suffering people, God hears their cries. And He feels compassion toward them. But I also want you to notice that empathy alone is not what moves God here to action. Not just compassion moves God to action. What prompts God to work on behalf of a people is a covenant. You see, God loves everybody. God wants to help everybody, but God doesn't move on behalf of people until they are in a covenant relationship with Him. There are a lot of people tonight God would love to help, but they've forsaken a relationship with Him. They don't want to be in covenant with Him. And therefore, God can't help them. Hear these people cry out, but it's because of the covenant that He's made with them that, that He goes to work on their behalf. We're told in verse 24, So God heard their groaning, and notice this, And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. In Genesis 15, verse 13, 600 years earlier, God had promised Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years, but in the fourth generation they shall return here. And now those 400 years are about over, and God has heard the cries of His covenant people, and He has recalled the promise to them that He's made, and He is now preparing for them a deliverer. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Again, God acknowledged them, not just because He had empathy or compassion toward them, but because they had a covenant with Him. And the covenant that God acknowledges today, guys, is the one that He's made through Jesus Christ. Trust in Jesus, and you can have a relationship with God, and you will get in line with God's help and God's assistance and God's power. If you have a covenant with God, He'll come and work on your behalf. Well, chapter 3 begins... Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, or Reuel, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb is actually a mountain range. Sinai is the actual peak. The traditional Mount Sinai is a site called Jebel Musa, which is called the mountain of Moses. And it sits in the south-central portion of the Sinai Peninsula, Jabal Musa is a mountain that looks like the rock of Gibraltar, just sort of coming up out of the ground. It's 7,500 feet above sea level. There are other theories, though, as to the identity of the mountain of God. Charles turned me on to a few interesting websites. If you want to do some research into this, you can, you can check with him. But some folks place the mountain of God in the northwestern corner of Saudi Arabia, east of the Gulf of Aqaba. There's a mountain there called Jabel El-Laz. El 
that also fits this description. And so I suppose the exact identity of Mount Sinai is sort of up for debate. Now imagine that you and your family are out on a picnic. You're in this green grassy meadow. That may be a stretch, but let's just pretend you're in this green grassy meadow, sort of before the, you're, you're before Stone Mountain, you know, right? You're, you're, you've gone down, you're going to take in the laser show a little later. And, and you're down there, you, you've spread out your, your blanket and you've just popped the top on a Kentucky Fried Chicken box and, and you're just looking around at the trees and suddenly you see a strange sight. There's an azalea bush on fire. But, but it's not oxidizing. The bush is burning, but it's not consumed. Well, this is what Moses sees. Verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And so he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. I imagine he would have said that. I'm going to take a closer look. It's not every day you see a burning bush. Verse 4. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place where you stand is holy ground. Understand when God tells Moses that he's on holy ground. God isn't suggesting that there's something mysterious that's happened to the dirt under Moses' feet. It's not like they turned into moon rocks or heaven dust or something. No, what makes a person or an object or a place sacred or holy has nothing to do with the object itself. We need to understand that. The word holy means to set apart or to dedicate. And so the ground becomes holy, not, not because it changes its composition, but, but because it's here that God meets Moses. This is the point that's become dedicated to God for a meeting with God. That's what makes it holy. This building is holy, we might say. But not because it's built out of golden block or sheetrock mixed with baptismal water or something. But because this is the place that we've set aside to meet with God. It becomes special. It becomes set apart and dedicated. Not because of the physical structure or the materials used. But because of the purpose we've assigned to it. You are holy. Not because you're morally flawless. Or because you're more spiritually sensitive than other people. No, you have become holy. Because you have dedicated yourself to God. To be a place where God dwells. Where God works. That's why each of you who know Jesus tonight are holy. We're a holy generation. We're a chosen people. Well, he says, the place where you're standing, Moses, is holy ground. Take off your sandals. And in verse 6, the voice coming from the bush identifies himself. Moreover, he said... I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Now remember verse 2. Verse 2 tells us, The angel of the Lord 
appeared to Moses in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. Here the angel refers to himself as Jehovah God, as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Remember, the word angel in the Bible simply means messenger. Sometimes it's a heavenly messenger, sometimes it's an earthly messenger. Often in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is actually a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And I believe that's the case here. I believe there's no other explanation. On the one hand, it says an angel spoke to Moses. On the other hand, that angel identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who could that be? But Jesus Christ. I believe it was Jesus that spoke to Moses from the burning bush. And this is so fitting when you realize the symbols and the typology we're using here. Fire in the Bible is almost always symbolic of God's judgment. The word bush, which by the way in the Hebrew is actually, it means thorny bush. It represents man's sin and the curse that came about as a result. Thorns and thistles in the earth. And so a burning bush represents God's grace. Think about it. It's a picture that shows that sin is being judged. The bush, the thorns, the thistles. Sin is being judged. It's being burned. But the sinner, the bush himself, is never consumed. A burning bush. Jesus is our burning bush. It was Jesus who suffered our judgment. And yet he wasn't consumed. He lives. He rose again. In Christ, our sin is burned up. While at the same time, the sinner is saved. Jesus is our burning bush. Thank God for that. Verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Uptites and the Adesites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But notice Moses' response in verse 11. Remember, 40 years earlier, Moses took it all into his own hands, didn't he? Moses was brimming in confidence. Moses killed that Egyptian. He looked this way. He looked that way. He killed that guy with his bare hands and buried him in the sand. Moses thought he was ready to deliver the Hebrews. <laughs> Not anymore. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? A.W. Pink, he writes these words. Moses at 80 was not as eager as he was at 40. Solitude had sobered him. Keeping sheep had tamed him. He saw difficulties in himself, in the people, in his task. He had already tried once and failed. Understand the change in Moses' attitude. While in Egypt he thought he was God's gift to the Hebrews, but his 40 years in the wilderness had humbled him. D.L. Moody summarizes Moses' life as follows. 
Moses spent his first 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was a somebody. He spent his second 40 years in the desert learning he was a nobody. And he spends his last 40 years showing what God can do with a somebody who discovers he's a nobody. That's good. God always uses what's broken and what's little and what's defeated. And Moses was all of the above. In Egypt, Moses was full of himself. In Midian, he came to an end of himself. And now on the mountain of God, he meets God. And he leaves filled with God's glory. But notice, you can't be full of God's glory when you're full of yourself. There's got to be a humbling first. Moses learned the three R's in Egypt. Reading, writing, and arithmetic. But on the backside of the desert, he learned a fourth R. The most important R, he learned reliance. He learned faith in God. Moses, though, is feeling pretty inadequate in light of his commission. Think about it. God is asking Moses to walk into the court of Pharaoh and demand that he release his slave labor. That's like you or I walking into a palace in Beijing and look the Chinese emperor eyeball to eyeball and say, Hey, we want better treatment for Christians in your country. Boy, that would be a heavy task. Well, as Moses puts it in verse 11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I can't do this. In verse 12, God answers Moses, I will certainly be with you. Isn't that amazing? How did he silence Moses' fears? How did he silence Moses' doubts? By promising Moses his presence. Guys, when God says, I will be with you, what more do you want? When God says, certainly I will be with you, nothing's impossible. What more do we want? But God continues, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God here reveals his majestic, eternal name. I am. I am, of course, is the present tense form of the verb to be. And it speaks of God's autonomy. God is. God exists. He is the only one who is truly self-existent. God has need of nada. He depends on no one. God is the only one who is totally self-sufficient. You and I can't say that. We, we, need, we need God for our next breath. Only God can say, I am. In verse 11, Moses had asked God, who am I? <laughs> but now God replies, it doesn't matter who you am. All that matters is I am in the desert, Moses discovered that he was the great I ain't. Now he's about to learn that God is the great I am. And God will be with him. Moses needs to forget about who he is or who he ain't. And he needs to focus on who God is. Guys, we lose our inadequacies in God's sufficiency. 
Moses became a great man, not because he was a self-made man, but because he was a God-made man. And remember, it took God 40 years to make a Moses. Actually, by the point when he gets ready to go back to Egypt, it's now been 80 years. You know, when an artist paints a masterpiece, he can't be rushed, can he? He has to take his time. It took Michelangelo four years, four years to paint the Sistine Chapel. I've been in the Sistine Chapel. It's not a very big room. It's kind of a small room. But it took him four years to finish it. Likewise, when God makes a man, he takes his time. If you want to be great for God, you need to have patience. It reminds me of what the chancellor of Hiram College once told a friend who wanted to know if he could sort of speed up his son's education. Hey, hey, put him on the fast track, would you? The chancellor replied, It all depends on what you want to make of your son. When God makes an oak, it requires 100 years. When he produces a squash, it only takes two months. Hey, you can be a squash right now. But if you want to be an oak, it takes time. Don't resent how long God keeps you in the cooker. It takes time to shape character. Well, verse 15 says, Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. You remember, when you see the word Lord in all capital letters, that's the translator's way of indicating that in the Hebrew, it's the word Yahweh or Jehovah. It's basically a derivative of the phrase I am the, the name comes from the verb to be or I am and it harkens back to that statement I am who I am this is the covenant name that God gives to his people Israel in Egypt Moses is to go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them the Lord God of your fathers the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob appeared to me saying I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt and I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and all those otherites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. God knows it's going to take more than one miracle. Or two. Or three. Or six. Or nine. To loosen Pharaoh's grip. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders. God is ready to work ten plagues to defeat the Pharaoh which I will do in its midst, and after that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. In other words, God will not just defeat Egypt, but he plans to strip them of the wealth that has been made for them through all this Hebrew labor. Strip them of that wealth and give it back to the people who worked for it. His own people, the Hebrews. After 400 years of free labor, when they leave, God is going to orchestrate a one-time payday. 
He says, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. In other words, God says you're not just going to be delivered, but you're going to go out with blessing. And that's God's word to us tonight. That He not only wants us to deliver us from sin, He not only wants to forgive us and cleanse us and make us His child, but He wants to bless us to boot. He wants to pour out His riches upon us and clothe us in righteousness and renew our minds and bless us with spiritual gifts. God has all this in store for us. For those who are in covenant relationship with Him, God has mercy on everybody. But He acts on behalf of the people who are in a relationship with Him. And, and how do you get in that relationship? It's real easy, guys. You just open up your heart and you ask Jesus Christ to come in and be your Lord and your Savior. And if you haven't done that, you can do that tonight. I'll meet you right here in the altar. We'll pray together. And so there we have. Didn't make it to chapter 4, did I? There's the first three chapters of the book of Exodus. And next week, we'll try to make up chapter 4. We'll try to do chapter 4 through 8 next week. We'll see. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for encouraging our hearts tonight. Help us, Lord, as we continue to go through the scriptures. May the scriptures go through us, cleanse us, change us, make us into the people you want us to be. We thank you for your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.